want you to open your Bibles. We're continuing through 2 Corinthians. As a matter of fact, we're going to camp today on a verse we've already looked at, but I want to just walk through a little bit of the verse, and that is 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11. Now, there are uh, really three sources that we generally get our truth from. We all have to have something. Everybody in here came with something that your life is wrapped around. There's something that really drives your decisions, drives your marriage, drives everything. Now, there are really basically, particularly in our situation with Texas A&M here, there are really three sources of truth that we wrap around. One is academics, what the academy says, what the uh, elite educators say. We listen to them and we go, yeah, that's where we're going to wrap our truth. Next thing is our culture, what it thinks, what it feels, what our neighbors think, what the people that we hang out think, and they help develop what we believe. But the third option is this book. Now, what I fear is that I meet a lot of Christians who sort of combine, a lot of times, culture and this. You have to come to a place where this is what drives your truth, particularly with what we're going to look at today. Now, you stay in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. I'm going to read you from the book of 1 Peter, and I'll call some of these verses out. We're going to travel a little bit of ground today. But we've read this before, but I want you to listen to what he says. 1 Peter 5.8, watch, be sober, your adversary the devil walks around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Now, when the academy hears that, they go, yeah, right. When the culture hears that, they go, yeah, maybe, but it's probably just, you know, a bad force or, or the bad uh, aura that comes from people. But what the Bible would teach is that Satan is a legitimate personal being. Probably was the archangel, or at least the highest cherub in heaven, got arrogant and fell, but that he is a real legitimate person. Matter of fact, Jesus thought so because either he was psychopathic or he, well, he, he was legitimate in that he had personal conversations with Satan. They talked for 40 days in the wilderness. At one point at the end of his life, he said, the prince of this world's coming, but I have nothing to do with him. Let's go. So there was this dialogue and this relationship. So when you look at the book, He's legit and real. Now, his agenda is to wreck you. Now, I didn't see this till I translated. I've never translated 2 Corinthians. When I was walking through the passage last week, I'd never seen this word used here. For example, if you go to Ephesians 6, when it talks about put on full armor of God so you can stand against the schemes of the devil, the Greek word there is methodias. We obviously get the word method from it. It's his trickery or his schemes, his ideas, which makes great sense, fits the Greek word. But that's not the word used here. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11, he says that you not, might not be overtaken or, or overcome by Satan, for we are not ignorant about his... And here's the literal meaning of the Greek word. 
The Greek word is thoughts and what results out of those thoughts. That's the literal Greek word. So he says we are not ignorant about what he's thinking and what those thoughts have led to in our lives. So when the Bible says that he seeks to wreck you and understand how this works. We've talked about this a million times. We're in a chess game. Before you come to Christ, you're on this side. You get saved, Jesus pulls you over on this side. Satan can't take you back to the other side. He can't do anything with that. What he can do, though, is take your piece, which God's going to try to move across the board to impact other people. He can take that piece and short-circuit it. He's going to make it stop, or he can damage it in a way where it's moving has no effect. So, the Bible says, when you combine 1 Peter 5 and 2 Corinthians 1, 2, what it says is that Satan's out there. He has an agenda to stop you from being effective for Christ. And he has thought about how to do that. Now, he's continually thinking because he's going to do some stratagems that are specific to all of us. So we don't have time to go into that. I couldn't do that because we'd have to know everybody in the church. And I can't go obviously into everything he's thought of, but I want to look at a couple things today that he's thought of that works with every single one of us. Every one of us face these things that he's thought about and thought I can use those to freeze them And to make them ineffective for Christ. Now, here's the first thing he figured out. He will make you doubt whether or not you're a believer. Now, I made a statement on Wednesday night. I said, said, to me, kind of the proof of whether or not you're a believer is that you doubt. Because... He wouldn't make you doubt if you weren't a believer. He doesn't want you thinking about coming to Christ. So if you're doubting, it's probably the proof that you're a Christian. (laughs) One man on Wednesday night raised his hand and he said, I must be the greatest Christian ever. (laughs) He makes us doubt. He makes you wonder if you're a believer. Now, I want you to listen. Two verses that I want you to lock down in your life. First John 5, 13. He says, I've written these things to you that you might know that you have eternal life. Who? To those who believe in the name of the Son of God. So when the Holy Spirit comes to you and says, tells you the truth about Jesus and you believe that, you believe I'm bad, Jesus isn't, his death paid for my sins. Okay? Then in Romans chapter 10, verse 13, it makes this statement. Very clearly, very simply, very concisely. It says, for every single person who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Every person. So if there are two things true in your life today, if the Holy Spirit spoke to you, I don't care when you were, and you believe what the Bible says about you and about Jesus, that you're bad and you're in trouble and Jesus isn't bad, he's perfect and he can get you out of it, and you've called on his name, 
you're saved. It's that simple. Now, it really is troublesome. I, uh, I read, as most of you know, from the Greek Testament. Now, the reason I do that, and I took five and a half years of Greek, and the reason I did that is because of a man named W.A. Crystal. Most of you probably at this point don't know that name. He was a pastor of First Baptist Dallas for years after George Truett. Took over in 45 when Truett died, and he pastored there for a long time. Tremendously impacting preacher. There are two things I stole from him. One, and I met him one time at the end of a service, never had lunch with him, never did anything with him, but I read every one of his books, and there are two things I stole from him. One was I wanted to dig into the Greek, and number two, I wanted to preach book by book, verse by verse, because exactly what he did. He impacted my life. He impacted tons of people's lives. There are thousands of preachers who stand on the Word of God today because of what he said. He was the first guy that stood up and said, we've got a problem in our convention, and we've got to believe that the Bible's absolutely true. Phenomenal guy, built First Dallas into a massive church. I remember when Raphael Seption joined, he was a place kicker for the Cowboys. He was the 20, back when they were Cowboys, he was the 20,000th member of First Baptist Dallas. I mean, this guy impacted thousands of people. But at the end of life, he said that all his life, he doubted whether or not he was a born-again believer. He said, I was saved when I was six. And he said, it has worn on me all my life. When a guy like that, who has literally impacted the kingdom in a massive way, doubts his entire life, do not think you're not going to do it. You're going to doubt. So you have to come to a place where you say, you know what? First John 5, 13, I believe what the Holy Spirit told me about Jesus. Romans 10, 13, I have called on God because of my belief. And buddy, if those two things are true, he's a liar. God's a truth teller. You're okay. That is what the Word teaches. Now, don't let anybody... And you've got to just believe that. There are people out there that will try to say to you, and, I, and sometimes it's preacher's fault. Actually, most of the time it's preacher's fault. We have a tendency to say, well, you know, you've, you've got to come to this point when you were saved. And I, I really do believe that. Now, if you ask me when I was saved, I do remember a point at the end of my junior year when I came to Christ. If you ask me what time it was, I got nothing. If you ask me what day it was, I got nothing. You ask me, we moved after my junior year from Louisiana to Alabama. If you ask me whether or not I was saved in Louisiana or Alabama, I can't remember. I have no idea. I do know. Hearing Billy Graham say something, Spirit speaking to me, going back into my room and asking Christ into my heart. I do know. I believe Romans 1 John 5, 13. And I call on God. I know that to be true. I do remember there was a time when that happened. You ask me the details, I've got Nothing. You don't have to know the details. And number two, don't let anybody say to you, when you go to them and you say, man, I'm doubting my salvation, don't let anybody say to you, look, here's what you need to do. Let's nail it down. Let's pray to Jesus today and settle it. If you do that, you're going to do that every year for the rest of your life. Uh, uh, 25 years ago here, I won't call his name out, 
But a buddy of mine called me. The Southern Baptists used to do this thing where every church in the association would have a revival of the same week. And so to be part of the association said okay. And so we did a revival in the same week. So a buddy of mine called me and said, look, I'm, I'm a pastor. I'm going into evangelism. Can I come preach at your church? I need a larger church on my resume. I said, absolutely sure. So he came. Really bad mistake. I will never forget as long as I live. I'm sitting, uh, we're obviously in the old church, and I'm, I'm standing down here, and he's finished the sermon, and he's doing the invitation. Let me back up. He's yelling the invitation. I can barely hear what somebody's saying to me, and then I hear this out of his mouth. And when I hear it, I'm thinking, no, no. He did not just say that. I catch a couple of people after church, and they go, oh, yeah, that's what he said. This is what he said. This is what he said. He said, if you're doubting your salvation today, you need to come down here and kneel and pray and settle it. Because, here's what he said, because God will forgive you for being saved twice, but he won't forgive you for not being saved at all. When you're a pastor, and you got somebody crying and pouring their eyes at it, and you hear that, you're going... What in the world? I mean, I've heard some really ignorant statements. That is at the top. I honestly don't even know what it means. <laughs> so, doubting is his first agenda with you. But I'm telling you, if you doubt, it's probably the absolute proof that you're a born-again child of God. Number two going to do to you what he did in this passage in 2 Corinthians. Remember in the first letter, we got people that are over here, grace-centered. Buddy, you can do anything you want in the church. You can do something nobody else in the city is doing. We're good with that. You're a nice guy. You give a lot of money. We're good with you. We love you. Come on in. You can greet. No problem. Then by the time you get to the second letter, 2 Corinthians, this guy's repented. Come back. They won't let him back in the church because now they're legalistic. You can't come back in here, you filthy, wretched, dog-eared sinner. So you got two extremes. That is what he will do with you. He will take you, listen, one of the most important things you can do in Christianity is make, your, make sure your theology is always balanced between two dangerous poles. If you get to these two poles, you're always going to be in trouble. For example, what's the first line? Not in the Lord's Prayer in John 17, but what's the first line in the Sermon on the Mount when uh, Jesus does the model prayer? What's, what's the first thing he says? Come on, what is it? Okay, if you don't know this. Lock the doors. We're staying late. What's the first sentence in that prayer? Come on. No, that's the Beatitudes, though. It's his prayer. Our Father who, how many said art? Yeah, you've read the King James. Yeah. I, same thing. I still say that, our Father who art in heaven. Two things, right? Brilliance of Jesus. Little capsulization of balance. Our Father. If he's my Father, what? He's close. He's intimate. He's imminent. There's a deep personal relationship. Our Father who art, 
in heaven. You look at all the stuff we're learning now about the incredible size of our universe. That there are stars, if they burn out, light travels at 186,000 miles per second. And if they burn out, it takes 30 years for us to know they're burnt. This thing is massive. So if he's in heaven, he's transcendent, he's out there, I can't find him. If you get caught over here, if you get caught over here, you get into the isms. You're going to get into deism and agnosticism. If you're over here, you're going to say, you're going to look at these stars and be intellectually honest and say, okay, there's got to be a God. If, if Rushmore is the indicator, the, the magnificence has got to be a God. But he's way out there. He may be there, but I can't possibly know him, nor can he know or you become a deist, which is what Voltaire was, which is the idea that, yeah, he started it, set it in motion, now he's gone. We've got to left on our own, because then those two things make sense. If you're over here, there's got to be a God, but if he's that far off, I can't know him, and maybe he did just start this thing, and now we're on our own. Well, I hope that's not true, because we're making a mess of things. Or you get over here and get centered, and what happens? You get so close that you get disrespectful. I'm watching TV one night. Periodically, I go to the TBN channel just for humor. And there's this guy on one night, this preacher. And he's got people down here, and he's trying to heal them. This is what he did, which was not funny. But he's talking to them about God healing him, and he takes, I can't do this, but he does the whistle thing, right? <laughs> to God. And then he said, hey, God, we got people that need to be down here healed. You need to get out here right now. Now, what blew me away is everybody in the audience <laughs> applauded. Because when you get too far over here, you lose your reverence. You get too far over here, you're rever rever reverential, but you lose your relationship. But if you do what Jesus said, our Father who is in heaven, you're balanced. And now you understand, if you know he's that big, but he's that close now, I know two things about my prayer life. I know he's big enough to answer, and I know he loves me enough to want to answer. So this balance affects everything about me. So the second thing he's going to do is do everything he can to pull you out of balance. Third thing he's going to do, he's going to rip your heart out with guilt. I, I've wrestled with how to do this today, but I'm, I'm going to go ahead and do this. There are two types of skeletons in your closet that will kill you. One is there's a group together. You've done something over and over and over and over, and you're still doing it over and over and over. He'll pull that bunch of skeletons out and say, man, keep doing the same thing. You don't really love Jesus. Or you have one skeleton that he pulls out on special moments. 
It's large, it's egregious, it's salient, it's huge. It is blinding to who you are. For example, there are a number of women in here today that have had abortions. Some, because I know this, some, I'm sure, have had abortions. I see this, every preacher I've talked to has dealt with this. Some have had abortions and have told no one. So here you are as a Christian, forgiven, but he will at the right moment pull this out and say to you, you are a sorry piece of dirt. What kind of woman would do that? And so when you go to church and the word abortion is mentioned, or you go to somewhere where they preach about abortion, or you see it on TV, or you hear political people talking about it, or you hear your neighbors talking about it, every time that word comes up, he will take that thing and he will pull it out and he will say, look at what you did. Let me be clear. Okay? You are completely and totally forgiven in Jesus Christ. My, in John 8, they have this lady that they literally, the inference is in the text, that they catch her in the bed with a guy and bring her in the bed sheet to Jesus. Now, they don't bring the guy, don't quite ever understand that, but they bring the lady. Bring her up to Jesus, and they go, okay, look at what she just finished doing. We should stone her. So Jesus does an interesting thing. He says, okay, I'm in. Let's do it. Now, which one of you guys doesn't have any sin? The Bible says they just kind of walk away. And then he says to her two things. He asks her a question. Anybody here to condemn you? And she says, no, sir. So then he says two things to her. Neither do I quit. Now let me tell you something as a child of God. You are automatically, completely, and thoroughly forgiven. I don't care how big the skeleton is. I don't care how many are latched together. You are forgiven. Now, your job is not to sit here and say, oh, God, please forgive me, please forgive me. No, your job is to get up and say, God, how can I stop this? That's your heartbeat. You don't worry about forgiveness. It's done. The Bible says what? That he throws it as far as east is to west. It's in the depths of the sea, right? Can he reach in the depths of the sea? Sure he can. Can he reach east to west? Sure he can. So why use those metaphors to remind me I can't reach to the bottom of the sea. I can't reach east to west. He's taking the sin so it doesn't bother me. The Bible says he lives every single day to make intercession for me. When I do mess up and I add a skeleton in here, the minute before I even get it to the door, it's gone because my Savior comes to his Father 
And he says, my blood is enough for what he did today. He's a liar. I don't care what you did or didn't do. You carry no guilt in Jesus Christ. Next thing he will do, last thing. He will make you believe that God doesn't love you. This coming Saturday, I'm going to Houston to take part in a funeral service for a lady that was here. She, her husband was a SWAT member at College Station PD and uh, became a Secret Service agent, so they moved to Houston. And uh, she died, second bout with cancer. Cece Benefield, great lady. But she has kids all the way from college down. Now, I guarantee you, this is why I hate Satan. I do, I hate him. Because when I go there, I'm going to feel for those children. He, though, is going to step in ready to stomp their little hearts. Because what he's going to do is he's going to step in, and I guarantee he's already done it. He's going to step in and say, you know what? If God loved you, your mom would still be here. And if you're going through that pain, and I'm going to tell you, this lady was a great lady. So if you're going through that pain, and the enemy says to you, hey, if he loved you, she'd still be here. And you want her here, and you love her, and you know she loves you, and you can't fathom this. And buddy, that argument is painfully powerful. So what do you do? What do you do to handle all this? When I grew up, I went to every horror show I could go to. They weren't graphic like they are today. We had three main monsters when I grew up. Wolfman. He scared me because you couldn't get away from him. Had to have a sil silver bullet to kill him. I didn't have any silver bullets. So... He nerves me. Now, you had to only worry about a full moon, but if it was full moon, you had to be careful when you bid that night. I got that. He scared me. Frankenstein, if you can't outrun that thing. I mean, he just never did terrorize me unless he gets you in the room. Once he gets his hand on you, pretty much toast. But if you can't outrun that guy, you just really have nothing in you anyway. And you, I, in that day, I thought, well, you know, that's pathetic. So he didn't bother me. Dracula was the other one. Now, Dracula didn't really bother me either, and I never understood why people didn't do this. All he had to do was have a cross. He comes in the room, you go. <laughs> He's flying out the window with a bat. You can turn him into the bat with a cross. I never understood these women. They take the cross off and go to bed. I'm thinking, don't take it off. He's coming in the window. that's all you needed so I'm telling you that's all you need this is at the centerpiece of our church for this reason everything I just told you is going to monkey weed you about is answered in that cross when he says to you you better doubt your salvation I hold the cross up and go you know what buddy it's not dependent on me it's not what I do for him it's what he did for me and I believe it and I accept it, so get off my back. When he 
tries to imbalance my theology, I remind him, this is the perfect balance between my sin and his love. So that I know. When I look at the cross, I don't have any guilt. And I know when I look at the cross, no matter what happens in my life, if he put his son on that cross for my sin because he loved me, then, buddy, I am okay. So here's what you do. When he jacks with you, don't argue with him. He's smarter than you are. He knows the Bible better than you. He is sharper. So you just do one thing. He comes jacking with you. You just hold up the cross, put it in his face, and down his throat. And let him understand. You hide behind the cross of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, he's good, but you are immensely better. Father, remind us who we are in you. That there are people in this room, Father, they just, they don't know if you love them. They're struggling in their theology. They, they're guilt-ridden, and they're not sure. Father, let your Holy Spirit stroll among these chairs and settle every one of those issues. I ask you that in Jesus Christ's name. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed, staff and I are here at the front. You need to pray about anything, we are more than glad to pray with you. God's speaking to you about an issue you're struggling with. We want to help you in any way we can. So as he speaks to your heart this morning, you come.